Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of recordings. This time around, we're doing something just a little bit different. Associate producer Mike Wood came to me with an idea for an episode, and as this podcast really is anything we want to make it, I thought it would be a really interesting departure from the regular bio episodes and short story episodes that have been released to date. Late Night Madness shows have been taking place at the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival for almost as long as the festival has existed. Dick Finkel, who founded the festival, saw an opportunity early on, and it quickly became an Edmonton Street Fest tradition. Thankfully, we have the following audio from our archives of Dick describing exactly how it all came about. The other thing that inadvertently happened, but it also cemented our reputation, it also added immensely to the event of Edmonton. And that is, the, I think it was the third year, we had some really good talent up here. And I had scheduled everybody tightly, and I gave everybody their schedule. I had a meeting on, I think, Monday night. Ask everybody, how's it going? Any suggestions? And somebody said, we're not doing shows Saturday night. How come? And I said, well, you know, by Saturday, you're going to be exhausted. So I figured Saturday night we'd party. And somebody said, no, man, it's Saturday night. we got to perform. And I remember saying, okay, here's the deal. Let's do a group show. Okay? And by that time, there was already, because of the hospitality suite, and because nobody was up anybody's ass performer-wise, there was already a lot of kibitzing and learning and teaching going on amongst the artists. And I said, so everybody will perform the Saturday night show, but the deal is you don't do anything you normally do during your show, and you do it with somebody you've never done it with before. And that became Late Night Madness. And that was just off the top of my head, and because I had fucked up the scheduling. Producer Shelley Switzer asked Mike Wood to direct the Late Night Madness show in 2016, and the theme the cast agreed on lends itself really well to the podcast format. So let's set the scene. It's late, and the regular festival shows on Sir Winston Churchill Square have wrapped up for the evening. People wander over to the Edmonton Public Library to catch one last show, this one in a theater. As the audience filters in, there's a pleasant medley of tunes being played on piano by muso Jason Cody. People chit-chat as they wait for the show to begin, then there's a rise in excitement as the music starts to swell, and, well, I'll leave it to Mike to relate the concept of the show to you more fully. I should explain myself. I wanted the show to be about orphan jokes and homeless stories. <clears throat> the kind of jokes that uh, you know don't belong anywhere and stories that you can't tell at dinner parties. Uh, I think that orphan jokes are kind of pernicious. For example, I have this problem where I really like choral music, uh, but every time I hear a group of angelic voices finish on a high uh, note with an open vowel, all I can imagine is them craning their heads back a little further, holding the note a little longer, and ululating with their tongues. And one day I wrote down Cunnilingus Chorus in my notebook. 
And it's over now. I can't use that joke anywhere, but I can't stop thinking about it, and it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> and we all have stories that you can't tell in civilized settings. For example, uh, my father's a dentist, and so that meant that when I was a kid, we never had sugar cereal, we never had candy in the house. I didn't know what sugar was. And uh, I, it's my first Halloween, or at least the first one where I was aware of the concept of Halloween. Um, uh, my parents were all ready to go, and dentist father had created two baskets for trick-or-treaters to choose from. One, a basket of toothbrushes. The other, a basket of sugar-free gum. So it was a pick-one-from-each-basket type of situation. Uh, and I was to be dressed as a little mouse, a little four-year-old mouse. And um, I didn't know what gum was. I didn't know how it worked. Mum was busy somewhere else. These baskets were present. And so all afternoon I was toddling around the house <laughs> over and over and over. And the time came for me to be put into my little mouse costume, which was really cute. It was like a gray sweatshirt and then this felt cowl with really cute ears that my mom had made. And she, once I was in it, she sewed the neck to the neck of the sweatshirt. So I've got this little, like, vision portal and ears. Cute. It's very cute. The whole operation was quite cute. And then we get into my dad's 1972 Cadillac Eldorado which is the largest automobile ever in production, longest. And it has a suspension, kind of like a Greyhound bus. So we're going to different houses for Halloween, and I've got a stomach full of gum, and I'm wearing my mouse costume. And at some point, my dad must have noticed me going green, and he started to try to pull over, but it was a bit late. And I just turned my head, And now I was wearing kind of a vomit wetsuit. <laughs> so that's what we're in for tonight. Uh, bunch of street performers uh, finding a place for their, uh, for their homeless stories and, uh, and forever homes for orphan jokes. So, enjoy. take group singing classes. And I'll be brief. Um, but basically, group singing classes just involve singing alone in front of a group and then receiving public criticism. It's just like American Idol, basically. Except the group in this context was 24 hyper-penetrating theater school students and one opera-trained instructor. And so I stood. And not being able to sing, I sang George Gershwin's typically beautiful Someone to Watch Over Me. Mm. 
And four bars in, my instructor stopped me. She said, Amber, um, okay, you're a dancer, hey? So I want you to get really into your body when you do this one, okay? I want you to do it again, yeah? But I want you to do it like Tina Turner. Just like super sexy, like Tina Turner. And so I did. And then she said, stop. No, Amber, more, more. I want you to get really into it. This time, I want you to do it like Shania Twain. Super sexy, like Shania Twain. Go. Shakira, go. Yeah. And so one of these hyper-penetrating theater school students watching me slowly die while aping the legends of modern pop was a man who would one day become my husband. And you might wonder whether it was this sudden reveal of a confused, atonal sensuality that made him fall in love with me. But no. It was a bottle of Crown Royal and a hot tub three weeks later. On the one hand, it is wrong to take things that do not belong to you. But on the other hand, the guy is dead. He can't possibly use it. The item in question is a bottle of vodka. Left with a few plastic flowers on a wall, a memorial wall at the graveyard where I walk the dog every evening. The cap has been opened, a small amount's been poured out or consumed by the one who left it. Is it an offering? A tribute? A thank you? It isn't clear, and it also isn't clear who exactly it's intended for because it sits at the foot of a cremation wall with all these names on it. Is it for Nora Beckett? Kim Jun Ho? Otto Fodstad? Yeah. Mm. Well, one of them, and if I don't take it, someone else will. I don't even particularly like vodka, but it's free, and it's Saturday, and the dog's looking at me like, why are we still standing here? So, I twist the cap back on, I put it in my coat pocket, and I can feel the chill of it against my skin as I walk back up the hill to home. Now, dead people, they don't bother me. I try not to speak ill of them, but I don't believe they can affect this world. And by now, I'm drinking a Caesar with celery and hot sauce as I sit on the deck in the cool evening air. I particularly enjoy these evenings. And I say evenings because this isn't the first bottle of graveyard vodka I have consumed. It's been about a year and a half now. Yeah, and every month, sometimes twice a month, someone leaves this bottle in the occasional flower right in the same spot. I've taken to calling it the Vodka of the Month Club. Because the brand changes and the bottle size changes and the flavor changes. Do you know they make an espresso vodka? It is particularly nice. So as I drink, I stumble in my mind, because I like words, over the word spirit and the fact that I'm drinking a spirit that was left for another spirit. 
And I know there's some meaning in it, but what it is escapes me because I'm getting drunk. <laughs> so I go into the kitchen and I crush some more fresh pepper in the drink and I sip it again. Oh man, it's perfect. But like I say, I'm torn. I can't help but feel I'm in some way connected to this dead person. I'm consuming something that belongs to them, and it's delicious. And by extension, I'm also connected to the person who continues to leave these offerings. Why the offering? Did they, in death, leave you a kidney or a, a liver? Did they help you to immigrate to Canada? Did this dead person save your life in some kind of knife fight in an opium den in Mumbai? Perhaps they were a secret lover who allowed you to see a part of yourself formerly undiscovered and the sudden gasp of truth that you were someone capable of love and of being loved. Anyway, I pour myself another one. A pint glass, ice, Clamato, graveyard vodka, Louisiana hot sauce, dash of Worcester, stir it with the celery, and then fresh crushed black pepper on top. <sighs> it's cold out now. I put my big house coat on and my slippers and I go out to the sit on the deck at night. It's a stiff drink this time. This is my good night drink. After this one, it's bedtime. And you know, I'm losing that ambition and the plans I always formulate on Graveyard Vodka Nights to make a trip to the Graveyard Archives and look up all the possible names that the bottle was intended for or better, stake out the graveyard and finally see the person who leaves this bottle and grab them and shake them and say, why? Ask them all about it. But that feeling's fading now. Fading like all strong urges eventually do. They fade and then they're gone. The stars are out now, and it's a rare, clear winter night. I can feel the absolute zero of outer space starting to creep into me through the bald spot on the top of my head. Man, I should get a hat. Ah, fuck it. I'll finish this drink and go in. And then I feel something like a human hand slowly begin to squeeze my heart from inside my chest. It, it crosses my mind that the vodka is poisoned. And that the person leaving the offering, finally sick of having it stolen by some greedy drunk, has decided to kill off the thief and has put rubbing alcohol into the bottle instead. And I'm, I'm dying. What an idiot I am. What a stupid way to die. And then the hand loses its grip a little on my heart. It eases, but I kind of still feel it there. No, no poison. If it was poisoned, I'd have been dead half a year ago. And why do I think the same thoughts repeatedly, and yet they feel so fresh each time? And how will I finally die? In deathbed, or car accident, or killed under a fall of white plastic chairs? And... <laughs> Maybe shot in bed by a jealous husband whose wife I'm fucking. Most likely killed while cycling. Yep, cycling. And I'm good with that. As long as they don't say that he died doing something he loved. Because you know what I like more than cycling? Staying the fuck alive! Yeah, fuck it. I'm really drunk now, and it is quite pleasant. Whatever. There's only one thing that's certain. I will insist that someone put vodka on my grave. And in that way, I'll pay all this shit 
backward. Yeah. About 20 years ago, my then-girlfriend at the time and I, we got on my motorcycle and we decided to take the ride from Edmonton to San Francisco. And we did. It was glorious. We went through BC, down the coast, the 101. Fantastic. We made our way back up to Canada, cutting through BC. We were in our 20s at this time. So by this point, about three weeks into the voyage, we were pretty broke. We were on our way back and we stopped in this little town called Yak. Yak, BC. Anybody? Yeah, Y-A-H-K. I don't know how they named that town, but they did, and they named it Yak. We were in Yak. We got a campground. We looked across. We set up camp. We looked across the street, and there was a bar. We went to the bar for a beer. We noticed in the corner there was karaoke, but there was a karaoke contest that night. Cash prize. We thought, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's enter this thing. We're big city people. We got this. We're going to make some dough. We decided to enter... And all I remember at that time was hearing the other contestants singing, and all I could think of was cats, and they sounded like cats. So I give you Meowyoki. <laughs> the first contestant came up, and she gave a pretty strong performance of Celine Dion's All Coming Back to Me Now. I looked my girlfriend in the eye and said, Oh, we got this. We so got this. No problem. The next performer came up and gave a decent rendition of Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. That's what it sounded like to me. Exactly. I was focused on my girlfriends. We knew tonight was our night. We were going to get the cash prize in Yak. We were going to win this thing with our stellar rendition of Meatloaf's Paradise by the Dashboard Light. That's how it ended. We didn't win. We came in second prize. Second place, we got $100 and some meat. (laughs) This is a uh, true story about the greatest... uh, Compliment and insult I ever received in the same sentence from a lover. So greatest compliment and insult together in one. It was over a decade ago. In Montreal, it was a cold, damp, uh, bone-chilling winter. Uh, The kind that would, uh, you know, really get you down and depressed. Veronique was a circus girl, and uh, we were friends for a few years and had gotten closer, and uh, uh, we had a lot of nights of dinners, and uh, we were in the same neighborhood, which was nice, and uh, wine, and, uh, and making love, and uh, then one day she left me. 
she told me she had to go back to her true love. Um, but then she told me I should call Laura, her roommate and cousin. So this story is about my lover, Laura. It was Montreal. <clears throat> so a couple of weeks go by. And I call Laura the cousin, who was very excited to hear from me and expecting my call, and invites me to dinner at her place, where I had just spent a couple of months uh, with Veronique. So it was a bit odd, but um, why not, right? So we have dinner and wine and some laughs, and while winter keeps bringing the cold and the snow outside, it's just, it's just survival, really. And... Um, you know, one thing leads to another. We have some laughs, and um, and then we went and had sex. Thank you. <laughs> so, as we do, I stood up uh, for a stretch after the act while Laura lit a cigarette. And then she said, Quand je t'ai vu, euh, j'ai pensé que. Mais. Je dois complètement redéfinir mon définition de masculinité. So. I said, What was that? was good in bed but the sex was good but my penis is small but you're completely redefining your concept of masculinity that's wow but you think it's small is it small there it was I was so conflicted the greatest compliment and insult of my life. Is my penis small? Is my penis small? Fly. 
Skip to the beat Walking down the street In my new La Freak Yeah This is how I roll Animal print pants Out of control It's like red food with a big afro And like Bruce Leroy got the flow Skip to the beat Walking down the street In my new La Freak It's how I roll Animal print pants Out of control To show it, I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. Wiggle, 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 yeah. Wiggle, 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 yeah. Wiggle. I'm sexy and I know it. It's average. It's very average. And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, 
the Southeast Edmonton Community Players present. They've been working on this for a long time now. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give it up for their rendition of Swan Lake. Mike Wood here. Sadly, the listener will miss out on the full impact of this piece. I'll try to help out as best I can. Emma Kerger, Amber Baratzik, and Morgan Nadeau appear on stage. Three deadly serious ballerinas. They hold their positions and dance to the music, taking the spotlight in turns. Morgan starts to get a little jealous of the other two having their big moments. There's some pushing and shoving. Emma and Amber are professionals. They maintain the integrity of the number and try to cover Morgan's unfortunate violent outburst. Morgan pushes Emma hard enough that she disappears off the edge of the stage. Amber is noticeably nervous, but maintains her composure. Sort of. Just as Amber takes the center stage for her big final moment, Morgan deals the final blow, sweeping aside all competition, reigning supreme as prima ballerina, victorious. There can be only one. think about death much, but every once in a while it does come up. And um, I went to Algeria on purpose uh, for work. And we're not in the like 100 kilometer strip of Algeria that's green, like the Mediterranean-y bit, uh, where the Romans were all set up. No, we were in the like full-on Sahara, where you're kind of trapped between the border of um, Libya and Mali, if you're trying to get away from anything <laughs> that happens. And uh, it's a, it's a long-ass haul. I was living in London, England at the time. You have to fly to France, and then from France you fly to Algiers, and from Algiers you take an even smaller plane in the middle of the night into the middle of the desert. And I was set up on a mine site. I was there to visit a gold mine that had been discovered in the 60s by the Russians. It's a super cool visit, except for the fact that it's in Algeria. And uh, the desert's awesome. I love the desert because you can see forever. It's like better than the prairies for that. Uh, and there's beautiful dunes. And this is full-on desert. There's a, uh, when you go to a mine site, for the most part, there's a safety. Like, hey, try not to get crushed by some stuff or caught on fire by anything. There's one of those. This one included a, here's what to do if you find a scorpion in your boot. <laughs> Which, by the way, you just jam it like this. Just jam the, jam the heel into your, your fist and then just tip it out. The scorpion's pissed, but whatever. He's down there now. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, uh, when I go somewhere where I think there's going to be wind, I have this thing. It's a little kite that it packs in a bag. There's no hard bony bits. So I pack my kite along with us. And... Um, uh, I had a couple days off, and on one of those days off, I decided that I was going to leave the compound of the mine site, and I was going to go out 
among the feral camels and the scorpions, and I was going to fly my kite for a couple hours or whatever. So I, I sign out at security, and uh, well, I started trekking up this dune, which is pretty hard to do, actually. It's kind of like uh, walking up a down escalator, because as you're going, the sand is just flowing away from underneath you, so you kind of have to run. And I, I ran to the top, and I got set up to get my kite airborne. It's one of those kind of two-handers, and you just you pull, and poof, away it goes. And so there I am, flying my kite on the top of a dune in the Sahara, and I'm getting the exfoliation of a lifetime. I'm enjoying the sun. It's, it's windy. I'm alive. This is amazing. And um, it's then that I hear, just over my shoulder, this kind of rhythmic clank swoosh. And I, I look, and it's a dude in desert camo uh, holding his AK-47 very steadily and marching up the dune along a similar path to the one I had taken to get to the top. And I remembered uh, this sort of warning letter we'd been given about all the things not to do in Algeria. Don't bring pornography. Don't bring booze. Don't bring a GPS. Don't bring your stamp collection. There was a whole bunch of things you weren't supposed to do, but I, didn't, I couldn't remember uh, that kites were on the list. And uh, the guy's getting closer. And I was thinking to myself, is this how it ends? Do I get shot at the top of a dune? And a dude takes my kite? And... <laughs> And so I, uh, I kind of didn't know what to do. I just kind of stood there, wished I had to change a diaper. And the fella comes right up behind me and he goes, Oh, c'est génial! Which is French for cool. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. So now we're each speaking a second language. Uh, we're communicating, yeah, pulls, you got to pull it like this if you want it to fly that way. <laughs> and I'm showing him how it works. We're talking about stuff. And I realize that we're both just boys with a man's job. I'm in the desert to check out this gold mine, and he's probably stationed somewhere where everything's so boring that to see a kite in the air means you want to run up a dune with your gun. <laughs> so I said, hey, you, you want to try it? And he's like, oh, yes. So I handed both handles over to him, which meant that he didn't have his hands on the gun anymore, and I could stop thinking about dying. so excited because my story is the last story for tonight. Woo! 
Thank you. That was also very exciting. Uh, yes. Uh, woo. Uh, I'm also very excited because my story, it is not about something that happened in the past. It is something that's going to happen now. So uh, we don't know. <laughs> we don't really know what's going to happen, but it's very exciting. Woo! Thank you. Somebody is alive. Woo! Two. Uh, okay. So uh, I will tell you what I when we woo two woo. Uh, yes when uh, when we make the meeting for what we're gonna do tonight uh, there was a guy a balloon man he told me he have uh, one of those big balloons. Ooh! <laughs> so so exciting. Woo! So. Um, I told him that I, I saw this a few times on television that people climb into the balloon, but I never tried it before. So... <laughs> so I'm going to try for the first time to, to do it here. Please, wait, wait. The music man, wait. Uh, no. Uh, the only problem is what I told you is a lie. Because I actually tried it uh, three hours ago with the second balloon. And it, <laughs> and it ended like this. Yeah. So, woo, two, two, woo. so now I'm going to try it for the second time. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Okay. It's not funny, but... So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, yes, let's see what will happen. Uh, are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> so exciting. Okay, music, maestro, let's make it happen. Ladies and gentlemen, you will see something you don't forget all your life. Ale, hop. It's bigger than Ethan's. <laughs> Mike Wood here again with a bit of narration. Yuri is using an electric leaf blower to inflate a huge weather balloon. When it gets big enough for him to comfortably stand inside it, he pushes his luck and blows a little more air in. Then a little more. For the people that close their ears in the front row. <laughs> ah, it's a nice moment in my life. Okay, let's make it happen. Yes. And a little more than that. Yuri climbs into the massive white balloon head first. He's never successfully done this before, remember. He's going at it based on having seen someone else do it. Air is farting out of the opening the whole time he's climbing in. He succeeds, though, and once Yuri is fully inside the balloon, he really makes a meal of it. He pops his head out to block the air escaping and starts jumping. This has the effect of making the balloon look as though it's a huge ball that's dribbling itself. What the audience doesn't know right now 
is that Yuri is also stripping. He's bouncing with his head sticking out of a huge weather balloon and taking off all his clothes. And now, to get out. <laughs> okay. When the routine is over and he emerges from the balloon, the audience is shocked, surprised, and delighted by the sight of a hairy, muscular Israeli acrobat in a thong. And Yuri is grinning like a Cheshire cat because not only has he pulled one over on the audience, he's successfully done a thing that he's never done before, and he did it in front of a crowd. was Midnight Madness from the Edmonton International Street Performers Festival in July 2016. Jason Cody's music led into my introduction off the top, then Amber Barotzik, who really can't sing, the grave-robbing antics of James O'Shea, Jason Cody's prize-winning adventure in Yak, a perfectly average romantic story from Aton Ross, a sexy song from Morgan Nadeau, then Emma, Amber, and Morgan with their deadly ballet, a death-defying story about a kite from me, and finally, Yuri who escaped from a balloon. One night only, a Friday in July. Lightning in a bottle, Midnight Madness. from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these little slices of busking history. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. All of the music for this episode was played live by Jason Cody on the evening that this Late Night Madness show took place. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment and leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we could improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Hoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for the newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. On behalf of myself, associate producer Mike Wood, who brought me this idea, Alan Plotkin, who captured this recording, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. This is a uh, true story <clears throat> about the greatest uh, compliment and insult I ever received in the same sentence from a lover. So greatest compliment and insult together in one. Maestro, please. Maestro.
It was over a decade ago. <clears throat> in Montreal, it was a cold, damp, uh, bone-chilling winter. Uh, the kind that would, uh, you know, really get you down and depressed. When I walk on by Girls be looking Like Tammy's fly Skip to the beat Walking down the street In my new La Freak Yeah This is how I You know, one thing leads to another. It's like Red Foo with a big afro and like Bruce Leroy got the flow. stretch after the act while Laura lit a cigarette. I'm sexy and I know it. I'm sexy and I know it. And then she said, Quand je t'ai vu, j'ai pensé que mais Complètement redéfinir mon définition de masculinité. The sex was good, but my penis is small. But you're completely redefining your concept of masculinity. It's, it's average. <laughs> it's, 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 
very average.